I guess the last topic of the afternoon, try to keep, you, keep everybody awake. Um, so this topic is management of cases which put you behind in clinic. And as I was thinking about uh, what to talk about, it occurred to me that basically my whole clinic is one long case that will put you behind in clinic. So I thought this is kind of like a joke being played on me or something. But the reason for that is that I see a lot of these kinds of things, you know, vasculitis, PG, HS, derm room, chronic wounds, urticaria pain management. You know, uh, these are things that um, will put anybody behind. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit, I kind of teased this earlier, but I'm going to talk a little bit about vasculitis and PG in greater depth um, to give you some pearls for managing those conditions. Um, but in general, how should we approach cases that we don't see often give us anxiety or bring things to a screeching halt? And again, this is, uh, you know, no matter who you are, there's something that will do this to you. So I would say that uh, we always want to think, this is my advice, we always want to think about what skin findings mean for the patient's overall health, and that's been a kind of recurring theme of the, of the talks that I've given so far. But at the same time, when things get complicated, as subspecialists, we're actually in a pretty good position because we can and should attempt to zero in on the issue at hand. That is to say, what is the skin problem, right? So we have a lot of complicated patients, say in the hospital that, that I see, and, or in clinic, and there's all this backstory but at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, like, what's the skin thing? And then you can kind of take it from there and build back out. So that's something that we have an advantage in. Um, we want to focus on what's most important at that given moment, what we can't afford to miss, what needs to be addressed during that particular office visit. You don't have to accomplish everything in one visit, right? So sometimes patients are very complicated. There's a lot going on. You're going to put them on systemic steroids. You're going to do all the, you know, do this testing and so on. Yes, it's good to think about steroid complications, but you can have that discussion the next time, for example. Um, and sometimes I'll use a phrase like when I'm talking to the patient, you know, this didn't come up overnight, the thing that they're coming in for. I'll say, you know, this didn't happen overnight. You've seen all these other providers or whatever. Um, we're not necessarily going to fix it overnight either, but here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do. And I think patients understand and appreciate um, that kind of dialogue. Buy time if you need it. It's okay to say you need to do some homework before making final recommendations. Um, in complicated cases, schedule a follow-up soon to make sure your plan is being implemented. Okay, so these are two, two, a two-part um, recommendation. So I think patients actually don't mind when you say, you know, here's what I'm thinking. These are the things that I'm thinking about, but I'm going to go and I'm going to read a little bit more about this. I'm going to ask a colleague. I'm going to get back to you. I think they actually appreciate the fact that you're taking that extra time um, to, to educate yourself. Um, they don't look at it at, you don't have to pretend that you know everything. Um, and as far as um, complicated cases and follow-up goes, you know, if I'm giving, uh, say, a patient with a complicated wound, you know, uh, all these recommendations, I'm having them taper their steroids, and here's what I want them to do for wound care and so on, you know, I better see them back soon to make sure they're doing it right. Um, and I think that's a nice way to reinforce the message you're trying to send. Um, even if you do a great job of um, handouts and so on, um, it's quite common for people to get like, you know, 50% of what you said. And then finally, admit when you don't know something and ask for help. Failing to seek help when you're out of your depth will get you into trouble. Okay, so as promised, I'm going to give you some pearls uh, for how I approach uh, a couple of entities that I think are challenging for all of us. So the first is vasculitis, and I'll call this section vasculitis in 20 minutes, so get, get yourself ready. All right, so what we're going to do here is we're going to explain why we see what we see in vasculitis. 
discuss a systematic and evidence-based approach to evaluation of vasculitis presenting in the skin, and illustrate diagnosis and management pearls via some short case presentations, and then ultimately uh, give you a practical framework for success. Okay, so when something is confusing, I like to break it down to the basic definition. And so in the case of vasculitis, it's inflammation of blood vessels that results in downstream ischemic tissue damage. And here the diagnosis depends very much on the clinical pathologic correlation. I like to say that this group of diseases is really the ultimate ClinPath correlation group of diseases. And the reason that's helpful is because once you remember what size of vessel a particular type of vasculitis affects, you can predict more or less what clinical manifestations are going to go along with that disease. And vice versa, when you're seeing clinical manifestations on the skin or in other organs, if you know, you know what, type, what size vessels, different entities involved, you can use that to your advantage and create a differential. And I'll, tell you, I'll show you what I mean. So in the case of the skin, you know, small vessel vasculitis, we see palpable purpura, we see urticarial lesions, vesicles, petechiae. For medium vessel disease, we see larger things, livido, retiform purpura, nodules, ulceration. And the way I think of this is with this tree diagram. Okay, so here in the tree diagram, we have our trunk of the tree, that's our medium-sized vessel down in the deep dermis or subcutis, and the superficial branches of the tree are the small vessels up in the superficial dermis. So in small vessel vasculitis, we have immune complex deposition up in those superficial branches. You have complement cascade, inflammatory response, and you get palpable purpura. And here, the purpura comes from the fact that the vessel's been disrupted and there's bleeding into the skin. The palpability is coming from the inflammatory response, the burn and itch the patient experiences comes from that inflammatory response as well, as so we see palpable purpura. For medium vessel disease, now it's the trunk of the tree that's impacted, and that whole overlying territory of skin may be affected by that. So you'll see things like livido reticularis, retiform purpura, and if the insult is significant enough, necrosis and even ulceration. So once we think about things using this kind of tree framework, um, we start to understand why we see what we see in vasculitis. So in the case of livido reticularis, if you take that tree and now you look at it from above, and then you remember that that's just one tree of a whole forest of trees. In fact, it's a canopy that you're looking at from above with branches interlocking with one another, affected, unaffected, affected, unaffected. You can quickly understand why it is we see this net-like appearance of livido reticularis. Or if the insult is more significant, now if we look at that tree from above and we draw like a dot to dot from branch to branch, we get that jagged appearance of stellate or retiform purpura. And again, if the insult is significant enough, that ulcerates, and here you have a fairly large, jagged shaped ulcer. So in the case of palpable purpura, to drive home the point, small vessel involvement accounts for small lesion size. The complement cascade inflammatory response accounts for the palpability, the symptomatology. Red blood cell extravasation from uh, vessel damage results in non-blanching purpura. And the effect of gravity on immune complex deposition tells you why it affects the lower legs um, disproportionately. So when we see palpable purpura, we're going to think small vessel vasculitis or a condition that overlaps with small vessel involvement. Almost as important as what we're seeing is what we're not seeing. So uh, things like subcutaneous nodules, retiform purpura, more significant ulceration. If we see stuff like that, we should be thinking about medium vessel vasculitis or a condition that overlaps with medium-sized vessels, like PAN, ANCA-associated vasculitis, or cryovasculitis. So if we use the skin exam alone, we can actually tell quite a bit about what our differential should be. 
But we can go organ by organ and do this same thing. So for the glomerulus uh, in the kidney, the glomerulus is the small uh, vessel. Uh, and so if you have immune complex deposition, inflammatory response, now that filter of the kidney isn't working so well and we have blood and protein spilling out into the urine and we call that glomerulonephritis. We see that in small vessel vasculitis, uh, such as those listed here. Whereas for medium vessel vasculitis, now those vessels are macroscopic. And so instead of glomerulonephritis, you actually get aneurysmal dilation and narrowing of these vessels and that results in renovascular hypertension and these are actually visible on angiography. It's like a pathognomonic thing for poly polyarteritis nodosa. And again, organ by organ, for small vessel vasculitis, we don't usually see nerve involvement, but for medium vessel disease, now those vessels are big enough to take off important nerves and you get a wrist drop or a foot drop, such as in this patient. So when we see a patient presenting uh, with vasculitis, uh, or what we think might be vasculitis on the skin, we should keep in mind that really this is a sign of disease rather than a disease entity in and of itself. And what does that mean? What do I mean by that? Well, where there are skin lesions, important systemic manifestations may be also. Underlying disease triggers, infections, connective tissue disease, and so on may be present. Um, and we can see similar skin lesions in other conditions like uh, vasculopathy or coagulopathy. So the point here is that when we see uh, palpable purpura, our work isn't finished yet. Just because we think, okay, it's gonna be small vessel vasculitis, we're not done. There's other stuff we have to think about. So when we see a patient like this, we wanna ask the basic question, are these lesions due to vasculitis? Are other organ systems involved? And are there findings which help us establish a particular diagnosis? So how are we going to confirm that this is vasculitis? Let's say you're seeing a patient in clinic, palpable purpura on the lower leg. How are we gonna make sure this is vasculitis? Well, we're gonna biopsy it. And here we want um, to pick a well-established but not old lesion. So here we're saying it's a one to two day old lesion. How do I know if a lesion is one to two days old? Well, I'm looking for purpura, that tells me it's well-established. Um, and I'm also looking for erythema, that tells me that it's still active. And the reason this is important is because if you biopsy too early or too late, you can miss um, characteristic histologic changes. If you're thinking a medium vessel disease, like PAN, you wanna make sure that you sample deep enough to actually get a medium-sized vessel. So those reside in the deep dermis or the subcutis. If you don't sample a medium-sized vessel, you can't say that there isn't medium vessel vasculitis, right? So here's what we'd be expecting to see. Um, so here's small vessel vasculitis. We're up in the superficial dermis. You know, this used to be a vessel. These used to be vessels. There's quite a lot of breaking up of neutrophils here and red blood cell extravasation into the skin, consistent with small vessel vasculitis. For medium vessel disease, now this is a muscular, medium-sized artery. There's an internal elastic lamina there. And again, inflammatory cells are coming into the vessel wall and destroying that vessel. If we're thinking small vessel vasculitis, LCV, Hennig-Schönlein purpura, I always like to get a direct immunofluorescence. Why do I care about that? Um, well, predominantly I care because of IgA vasculitis. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but these patients are at a much higher risk of GI, joint, and most importantly, renal involvement. Here your site selection, this is a lesional DIF. Here your site selection really needs to be a fresh lesion. So how do I know it's a fresh lesion? There's predominantly erythema, maybe a little bit of purpura. The reason I care about that is because those immune complexes are degraded very quickly during the inflammatory response. Um, in patients with IgA vasculitis, I, I answered this question in part earlier. It came, the question came up after the last lecture. Um, how do we monitor these patients? Well, in patients with IgA vasculitis, we want to look closely at urinalysis and blood pressure monitoring, especially the first month. They're much more likely to develop um, re renal involvement if they are going to in that first month, um, but up to six months. 
So I'll pose this question. I know palpable purpura when I see it. Do I really need to do a biopsy? And so this is a sort of rhetorical question I'm not going to ask you guys. The answer is yes. Um, and the reason for that is that even the most astute clinician can be fooled by mimickers of vasculitis. I'll show you some examples in a moment. We also want to be careful with pathology reports. So if you see your pathology report, the line diagnosis is vasculitis, I always suggest that you read the fine print. You know, is there actually fibrinoid necrosis of the vessel? Or is there just uh, perivascular inflammation or leukocytoclasis? Now, it may still be vasculitis, but the point is I want to make sure that it correlates clinically and histologically uh, in a way that I really feel comfortable with the diagnosis. At the same time, we have to be careful with things that can have a secondary vasculitis. So just because the pathology report comes back showing there's vasculitis there, it doesn't mean that it is a vasculitis that caused those changes. For instance, bug bites, trauma, neutrophilic dermatoses, these things can have vasculitis on the biopsy, but those are not types of vasculitis, right? So ClinPath correlation is key. So this is just a partial differential diagnosis for purpuric macules and papules on the skin. Um, and this includes, of course, types of vasculitis that we're talking about now, but also, like I mentioned, bug bites, you know, platelet dysfunction, pigmented purpuric dermatosis, and so on. So this was a patient who was referred to me for vasculitis. She had a biopsy report in hand that said small vessel vasculitis on it. But as you look at this, you say, you know, this doesn't really look like palpable purpura. Um, there's a whole lot of um, pal palpable, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, papular urticaria, we'll call it that, breakfast, lunch, and dinner going on here. She's got a pretty significant bed bug infestation, let's say. Um, but these lesions look urticarial. They're not palpable purpura. Or how about this patient? Um, she came in with these macular uh, purpuric lesions on the dorsal forearms only, nothing on the legs. She too had a biopsy report in hand that said vasculitis on it. But of course, you recognize this is actinic purpura. Now, why would actinic purpura show vasculitis on a biopsy? Well, of course, we understand the role of the sun in this, but there's also trauma, right? And so secondary to trauma, there was vasculitis. The point here is just that you need to recognize just because there's a path report that says one thing, if it doesn't match up clinically with what you're seeing, uh, rethink that diagnosis. Or how about this patient? Quite extensive lesions. You might look at this and think um, maybe that's going to be Hennig-Schönlein purpura. Um, but when you get up close, you notice these are quite small lesions. They have that characteristic rust color. And here the biopsy shows a capillaritis rather than a vasculitis. So this is consistent with pigmented purpuric dermatosis. Incidentally, he did very well on vitamin C and ruticide, which is that combination that we talk about for PPD. And finally, this condition, um, it's an important condition. It's a skin sinus systemic disease, an underlying hypercoagulable state, lividoid vasculopathy. If you biopsy this, you'll see clot in the vessels, not vasculitis. And these patients, does, these patients require a hypercoagulable workup, uh, but again, it's not vasculitis. And then it goes the other way, too. This was a patient that I saw who I thought for sure had vasculitis, looked like palpable purpura to me. We biopsied it, came back sort of nonspecific inflammatory infiltrate. I didn't like that answer, so I biopsied it again. Um, but it came back the same way. And ultimately, his uh, respiratory panel came back showing respiratory syncytial virus. So an atypical exanthem, to be sure. It was an immunosuppressed patient. Um, but it certainly fooled me. I thought it was vasculitis. So after we've confirmed that we are, in fact, dealing with vasculitis, we also want to uh, think about whether there are other organ systems involved and whether there are findings which help us establish a particular diagnosis. So here, there's no substitute for our doctoring skills, right? A thorough review of systems and exam should be performed along with, any, uh, with basic labs and any labs that are dictated by uh, findings on the review of systems and exam. Vasculitis can be and often is confined to the skin, but you must think about whether there's systemic involvement or underlying disease states that you have to treat. 
So this is a table that can be found in the textbook Bologna. I've checked it out, it's accurate. About half the time we have no idea why uh, small vessel vasculitis is happening, it's idiopathic. About 15% of the time there's an underlying infection, 15% of the time an underlying drug, 15% uh, of the time a connective tissue disease, and rarely an underlying neoplasm. Antibiotics, particularly beta-lactams, are common culprits, but almost any drug um, can cause vasculitis. Among infections, it's URIs, uh, hepatitis, uh, group A strep. These are common triggers, but again, many different triggers have been reported. And understandably, it can be hard to tease this apart. Um, this patient happened to uh, develop palpable purpura after starting thalidomide for her SCLE. Um, we can also see vasculitis presenting as a sign of connective tissue disease. Most commonly, this is lupus or Sjogren's syndrome. And these cases, understandably, are important because they can have more significant internal involvement, both from the underlying condition, but also uh, in the sense of systemic vasculitis as well. So these are important to pick up. And then rarely a cancer, as I mentioned. This was a patient with CLL who had chronic recurring small vessel vasculitis. And after we treated his CLL uh, with rituximab, his vasculitis went away. So a careful history and exam review of systems is essential for separating patients with skin-limited disease from those with more significant systemic involvement. And in particular, we're interested in constitutional symptoms like fever, weight loss, joint pains or joint swelling, hematuria or frothy urine if they notice that, abdominal pain, melena, cough, paresthesias, numbness or weakness, sinusitis, epistaxis. These are things, each of which are red flags for different types of systemic vasculitis. In most cases, fortunately for us, most cases of vasculitis of the skin, small vessel vasculitis of the skin, significant systemic manifestations are unlikely. So it's, it's fairly common to have arthralgias, especially if they have a lot of palpable purpura on the lower legs. They'll have puffy, uncomfortable ankles. Um, but if you have true arthritis at other locations, joint swelling remote to where there's uh, palpable purpura, then that's a red flag, as are any other systemic symptoms, constitutional, neurologic, and so on. These things are red flags for systemic vasculitis. If one or more of those symptoms is present, a targeted workup should proceed to identify uh, extracutaneous manifestations. Unfortunately, there's not really a protocol for how we work these patients up. And this question comes up all the time. I have this patient in my clinic. What labs do I need to order? Well, um, I can help you a little bit here. Most episodes of small vessel vasculitis that we see are going to be skin-limited and self-limited. They're going to go away within a month, and it's just the skin. So that's reassuring. That means that not every test needs to be ordered in every patient. And in fact, we don't want to order every test in every patient, because if we do, we're going to end up with that random ANA of 1 to 160 that we're not quite sure what to do with. But at the same time, serious internal organ dysfunction does rarely occur. So this is our most common trap. Either we order too little, that is, ignoring systemic symptoms or failing to order a urinalysis, which is very important, or ordering too much and getting that random ANA or antiphilosophic antibody uh, positivity that we don't know what to do with. So what do I do? Well, for an initial episode with a straightforward, uh, you know, negative review of systems, I'm only getting a CBC, a BMP, and a UA with micro. Of these tests, the urinalysis is the most essential. Patient is not going to necessarily have symptoms of glomerulonephritis until it's very far advanced. And so that urinalysis is going to tell you something that you're not getting from review of systems. And if there's blood, if there's more than, say, 10 to 20 red blood cells or it's repeated uh, more than once, um, then that urine sample needs to be looked at more closely by a nephrologist. And in particular, what they're looking for is red cell casts, like this one here, and dysmorphic red blood cells, these Mickey Mouse type um, uh, cells here. 
additional indiscriminate workup is unlikely to be helpful. So this is, these are some data from um, our uh, center as well as Harvard. And we took all of our cases of biopsy-proven small vessel vasculitis, inpatient and outpatient, and we looked at their workup. And we found that things like ESR and CRP, acute phase reactants, rarely normal, rarely helpful. ANCA and SPEP, rarely abnormal. You really only should order them when you have a suspicion uh, for one of these entities. And then screening, screening radiographs, that is, you make a diagnosis of small vessel vasculitis in the skin, and then you order like a CAT scan. Um, very, very unlikely to be helpful. Uh, less than 1% of CT scans led to a diagnosis of systemic vasculitis. Um, so the point here is that screening tests in this setting of an initial episode of small vessel vasculitis of the skin are mostly low yield, and we should reserve them for patients uh, with more than one episode or other concerning symptoms. Additional workup is indicated when there's concern for systemic involvement, however. So things like fecal occult blood test if there's abdominal pain, chest x-ray or chest CT if there's cough or dyspnea, a CT angiogram, as I mentioned before, um, will show uh, those changes, characteristic changes uh, in the kidneys of, of uh, polyarteritis nodosa, and really any other organ-specific targeted workup dictated by the review assistance and exam. By definition, we've been talking so far about small vessel vasculitis, palpable purpura, right? By definition, if you have retiform purpura, larger ulcers, sub-Q nodules, you need to be thinking about these other diseases and work those up appropriately. So for those with concerning symptoms or chronic recurring lesions with no obvious cause, so now they don't, maybe they don't have symptoms, but this is like the third episode, um, then I think it's reasonable to expand our workup. So we'll get our basic labs, but we'll also order infectious serologies, ASO, hepatitis, HIV, and then our rheumatologic workup, including ANA and rheumatoid factor. Rheumatoid factor is useful both to work up rheumatoid arthritis. It's also a surrogate marker for cryoglobulinemic vasculitis because people who have cryos uh, circulating in their blood, those are antibodies that bind other antibodies. That's what's called rheumatoid factor activity. So a patient with cryovasculitis almost always going to have not just a positive RF, but very positive. Other tests include SPAP or immunofixation to look for a preroprotein, complement levels, in the setting of urticarial vasculitis, if they have low complement levels, they're much more likely to have systemic involvement, including meeting criteria for lupus, ANCAs, and cryos. So what's the single most important initial lab to order in the setting of vasculitis? It's the urinalysis. So to summarize, for a straightforward case, initial episode, small vessel vasculitis of the skin with a negative review of systems, I'm only getting a CBC, a BMP, and a UA with micro. Um, if, however, there are other symptoms, or this is the second episode, um, they deserve more workup, and I will get uh, the tests I've listed there, in addition to any other workup that's warranted by the presenting signs and symptoms. So briefly, I'm gonna um, show you a couple of cases to help illustrate these points. So this was a 45-year-old man admitted uh, uh, to the hospital with fever. He had got antibiotics uh, in the ER. Now he's doing well, but he's developed the following rash, so you're called to evaluate. So what do you do and what's the diagnosis? Well, we're gonna biopsy it, show small vessel vasculitis, review of systems and physical exam are not concerning. Basic labs, including a UA, um, also checked and are unconcerning. His ESR is a little bit elevated. So what's the diagnosis? Well, this appears to be a case of skin-limited small vessel vasculitis. It's unclear whether it's secondary to infection or drug or it's idiopathic, but without significant systemic symptoms or cutaneous symptoms for that matter, doesn't even really bother him, we don't necessarily have to do anything. He doesn't necessarily need prednisone just because he has vasculitis in his skin. In most of the cases, most cases, this is gonna resolve on its own in around four weeks. 
So are acute phase reactants helpful in screening for systemic vasculitis? Unfortunately, no. Um, they're frequently elevated in skin-limited vasculitis, and I've seen them be normal in cases of systemic vasculitis. So how about this patient? She's 22. Um, she's admitted to the labor and delivery unit, and she gets a C-section for fetal heart rate decelerations. She's hypertensive on admission. Um, she has low platelets, low hemoglobin, and she's noted to have the following rash. And if you think for a moment about uh, um, experience on labor delivery, um, and you put that hat on for a moment, you'll say, okay, this is a patient with this rash. She's hypertensive. She has low uh, platelets, low hemoglobin. What condition are you worried about? HELP syndrome. And so that's what the team was thinking about. But as a dermatologist, you see these lesions and you say, you know, these are not really petechiae. They're a little bit big for that. And actually, some of them are palpable. I know that's hard to tell from a photograph, but you'll, you'll take my word for it. Um, and this is not just an artifact here in the photo. This is actually post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation from a prior episode of the same earlier in her pregnancy that was not properly evaluated. And then in addition to that, she has these lesions on her scalp and on her ear um, and these hyperpigmented kind of scarred uh, plaques. And so you may have an idea of what this is. Let's go through our exercise. We're going to biopsy her arm. It shows small vessel vasculitis. Review of systems is notable for weight loss. That usually doesn't happen during pregnancy. Joint pains, Raynaud's. Her creatinine's okay, but she has a bunch of blood in her urine. So again, postpartum woman with blood in her urinalysis, big deal, right? If you're labor and delivery, you're like, okay, big deal. And in fact, this was like three days old. This test was three days old by the time we were called. But we wanted to know, was that gynecological bleeding or was that potentially glomerular bleeding? Um, so we uh, checked a catheterized urine. It still had a lot of blood. Her urine protein creatinine ratio came back at two, which is getting toward nephrotic range proteinuria. And here, her ANA is 1 to 2560, double-stranded DNA 900, complement levels low, and the biopsy of her scalp, of course, shows discoid lupus. So this is actually a case of small vessel vasculitis as the presenting sign of systemic lupus. And even though I just told you not to order random ANAs, in this situation, walking through the door, you have a pretty good idea there's something more going on here, and this test is um, crucial to nailing down the diagnosis. So of course, treating a patient like this is going to be a conversation with nephrology and rheumatology. Uh, we went down the hall and looked at her baby. Why did we do that? We're thinking about neonatal lupus. Usually that happens with SSA or SSB antibodies, which she didn't end up having, but uh, it was easy enough for us to go and take a look. And she gets treated with IV steroids, then prednisone, Plaquenil, and Celsept, and does quite well. So our initial therapy and our prognosis is going to be dictated by workup. Obviously, we're going to need more aggressive systemic therapy in a patient who has internal organ involvement, like kidney involvement. Or if they have something like lupus, we're going to have to treat that. Um, but if we've ruled those things out, the treatment of skin-limited vasculitis should be ultimately symptom-focused. Because most of these cases are minimally symptomatic and self-limited, aggressive immunosuppression is generally not advisable. So I actually rarely use prednisone for palpable purpura. Unless it's painful or ulcerative, I try to avoid it because I've seen patients who need very high doses to respond and then they sort of get stuck on it um, and they develop later uh, complications from that. So it may be that rest and elevation, compression, topical steroids for age relief can be sufficient. Um, but there are patients who develop these kind of chronic recurring courses. What do we do with them? Well, I think for the discomfort, potential ulcerations, psychosocial impact of this, any episode that is not self-limited, that lasts longer than a few weeks or recurs, um, we want to treat that. The problem is we don't know what to treat them with. Um, there's only ever been one small randomized controlled trial of colchicine. Um, it lasted a month. It had 20 patients in it. And not surprisingly, it didn't show anything. It didn't answer the question. Um, but we tend to use colchicine. We use dapsone. We use azathioprine. Um, but we, uh, we don't ultimately know uh, the best treatment for these patients. 
Um, I'll briefly mention this study. It's a multi-center study that we're doing to try to answer this question. So we're taking patients with skin-limited vasculitis, that includes skin-limited IgA vasculitis and cutaneous PAN, as well as LCV, and we're randomizing them to colchicine, dapsone, or azathioprine. And if they don't respond, we re-randomize them to one of the other two. And we're hoping by the end of this study to have an answer for what's the best drug to treat these patients. So to summarize this section on vasculitis, um, I would say that skin findings have diagnostic and potentially prognostic importance, and we can use our physical exam and our clinical acumen uh, in dermatology to our advantage. We can tell a lot from that skin exam. But we do always want to confirm vasculitis with a biopsy. ClinPath correlation really is key for these diseases. We don't want to overorder labs in straightforward cases of small vessel vasculitis, but rather let the review of systems in the exam guide our workup. Um, of the tests you can order, the UA with micro is the most important. Um, and especially in IJ vasculitis, we're going to monitor more frequently. We do want to learn to use selected lab tests when they're indicated. So for instance, low complement levels signifying a worse prognosis for urticarial vasculitis, the rheumatoid factor as a screening tool for cryovasculitis, ANCA results, um, I mentioned the CT angiogram for PAN. Each of these tests has their role. Disease severity must guide management. I don't um, typically use a lot of prednisone, as I mentioned, especially in minimally symptomatic cases of skin-limited vasculitis. Um, and we're uh, working on ways to uh, find and determine the most effective steroid-sparing agents. So I think vasculitis can be difficult, but a systematic clinical and diagnostic approach leads to successful diagnosis and management. Um, and so I've, you know, there are reviews out there that go into more detail if you're interested. Okay, so the next section um, I'm going to talk about is uh, something I've entitled PG pearls. Okay, so this is another one of those diseases that will get you behind in clinic for sure. Um, and it's one that I seem to get a lot of referrals, rule out PG, um, and sort of, uh, you know, you're kind of committing yourself to 45 minutes at minimum going into those rooms. Um, so how are you going to manage these patients? How are you going to make decisions? Well, our objectives here are to discuss helpful clues to the diagnosis of neutrophilic dermatoses. We're going to hopefully gain comfort in the management of these diseases, including patients who are systemically ill, and learn to advocate for patients with other providers whose knowledge of neutrophilic dermatoses may be limited and ultimately provide some pearls for management of these patients. So I showed this patient's pictures earlier, but I'm gonna elaborate a little bit more on his case. So he's a 52-year-old man. Um, he came in with a bug bite. This is his uh, cell phone picture, actually, of his hand. And he was uh, treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics for presumed cellulitis. The site became necrotic. He went for debridement. It, be it broke down again. He went for debridement and then ultimately uh, successive amputations. Um, blood and tissue cultures repeatedly negative, and he was ultimately transferred to Penn with a request specifically for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So this is what he looked like when he came to us. And there are lots of things to learn from this case, um, but uh, first and foremost, when something doesn't respond to a particular treatment as you expect it to, you absolutely have to take a, take a step back, reevaluate and reassess, do you have the right diagnosis and management? So that's his right hand. This is his left arm, and there's quite an impressive ulcer there too. The presentation at, at, at the time of transfer was notable for tachycardia, hypotension, hypoxia. He was confused. He had a white count of 40. Um, this was a sick dude. He really looked septic. He, he was transferred actually straight to our ICU. So is this patient infected or not? That music seems so inappropriate to that case. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I think the appropriate answer for this is that, you know, he might be infected. I'm not telling them to stop antibiotics, but there are some things here that make us really think about PG, right? So there's this gunmetal gray, violaceous necrotic border. Um, and you see this in these other photos of PG. 
this violaceous gunmetal gray border, which is so typical. And this is how these lesions start. Um, patients often describe a pustule, and you know, you have to be careful with these. History is not always reliable, but this violaceous pustule is sort of the, the first initial lesion. And there's also history that's important here, pathogy, right? So pathogy doesn't happen in all cases of PG, um, but when it happens, it's very characteristic. So here, trauma making the lesion worse. So he keeps going for debridement and just making it worse. So what workup is appropriate? PG is both under and over diagnosed, right? It's, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, and it's the cause of a lot of confusion. Most of the referrals I receive for PG end up not being PG. And that's because the differential for ulcers is broad, and PG is somewhere near the bottom of that list. Um, so we're going to want to rule other stuff out. We're going to get a biopsy. We're going to get a tissue culture. Typically, we're biopsying here on the violaceous border. So this is a patient who had horrible Crohn's disease, fistula, and, you know, is it PG? Is it Crohn's? Is it, you know, what is this? We biopsied this lesion, and it ended up being an aggressive squamous cell carcinoma, a margarine ulcer, so-called but not PG. Or how about this patient? She was actually referred to me by another dermatologist for pyodermaganganosum following breast reduction surgery. But if you look closely, you see this beefy red granulation tissue, and this is a different kind of PG, pyogenic granuloma, um, but not pyodermaganganosum. Or this is a case that I, we've been seeing more and more for some reason. Maybe we're just more aware of it. But this is a very painful ulcer over the Achilles. That's where it likes to be. It also likes to be in kind of the lower lateral uh, uh, leg. Um, and it's necrotic, it's very painful, it's not responding to management. Often these get misdiagnosed as PG, they get put on prednisone, it doesn't make any difference. And this ends up being this entity called Martorell hypertensive ischemic ulcer. And basically these are patients with poorly controlled hypertension, often there's diabetes as well, and they have this kind of like um, fibrosis of the vessels, um, which results in poor flow in these small vessels and they end up having these painful ulcers. So um, another mimicker of PG. So I'm not going to belabor this point, but there are some criteria um, that are talked about, as well as uh, actually in the literature very recently, um, some new criteria that actually were um, statistically um, uh, reasonably effective. The, the story that these criteria are basically telling is that you need like a, a scenario that makes sense, right? A story that makes sense, and then you need to rule other stuff out. Um, you need a biopsy, you need a tissue culture, you need to think about what else is going on with that patient. So here's some images of other cases of PG just to help uh, conceptualize. So here we have, again, that sort of violaceous gunmetal gray appearance. Here it is a couple days later, kind of more impressive looking, violaceous gunmetal gray, kind of um, necrotic, ulcerative. Um, sometimes you see these patients with so-called vegetating uh, PG uh, or vegetative PG, and this is sort of this annular um, kind of buckshot, you know, looking lesion. And of course, you're going to want to make sure that this isn't some weird infection, um, but this is the subtype of pyodermaganganosum. Here again, you see that kind of annular sort of look and the violaceous border, very typical. And then often we're in the position of having to extrapolate because the patient's already been put on prednisone or some other therapy, and they're coming in to ask you, well, is it PG or not? And here, this is getting better, right? You don't see the violaceous gunmetal gray, but you see this kind of like buckshot appearance or cheesecloth appearance, and this is typical of healing PG. Um, same thing here, this kind of cribriform scarring is typical of pyodermaganganosum. Okay, so what percentage of the time is PG associated with an underlying medical disorder? Okay, good. So um, 
plurality of the vote here was 50%, and that's the number that's in the textbook. So 50% of patients have an underlying medical disorder. So this includes things like inflammatory bowel disease, inflammatory arthritis, hematologic disorders, including monoclonal gammopathy, as well as myelodysplastic syndrome and AML. We uh, looked back at about 350 of our cases, and we found a higher percentage, something closer to um, two-thirds of patients with an underlying medical condition. This is probably a little bit biased by the fact that we're a referral center, um, but inflammatory bowel disease, arthritis, cancers, and so on. Um, more commonly, we are seeing IBD in younger patients presenting with PG, um, and in older patients, things like RA and hematologic uh, processes uh, are more common. So here's an example of that. This is a patient with mild dysplastic syndrome who developed uh, PG at the site of port placement. She was getting a port to initiate chemotherapy, and she developed wound breakdown and these violaceous ulcerative lesions um, a couple days later. Um, and so, um, you know, you can stop there. You can say, hey, this is PG. I'm going to treat it with prednisone. Um, but the key thing is to ask, why is this happening now, right? Well, there's trauma, but is PG associated with MDS? It is. But, like, why is this happening now? So the, the team went and did another bone marrow biopsy at our behest, and she had 20% blast now. And so this is actually a case of pyodermaganglionosum heralding transformation of MDS to AML. So pearl number two, we always want to ask the why here, why now question, because what we see on the skin may indicate an underlying disorder. This is a patient with um, pustular neutrophilic dermatosis associated with a new uh, diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, and there on her leg is kind of a more typical pyodermaganglionosum, and there's that violaceous pustule. Um, this is a patient with um, inflammatory arthritis and HS, as well as PG. Um, and so we see, certainly see patients who have other conditions. So what workup then is appropriate? Pearl number three, we want to perform a biopsy in the tissue culture of the violaceous border to rule out other diagnoses. And we also want to screen for underlying medical conditions. So we do this with a good physical exam and review of systems. Um, we're going to ask specifically about GI stuff and joint symptoms. Um, we're going to get a rheumatoid factor, an SPEP, a CMP, a CBC, blood smear, uh, blood smear if there's an abnormality on the CBC, and often a colonoscopy um, if there's any GI symptoms. So let's get back to our patient from a management perspective. As the way I see it, there are two critical issues. First of all, he looks septic and what's going on there. And secondly, he's lost his right hand, unfortunately, and he has a left uh, arm ulcer that is limb-threatening. So do you wait for the biopsy and tissue culture to come back before treating? So I said this is an important thing to do, but do you wait before treating? Great, so I think your instincts here are correct. Um, so could he have a systemic infection? Sure, but could PG create these systemic symptoms as well? And it turns out that PG can affect other organs, um, but more commonly, it can result from all that inflammation and essentially what we would call a capillary leak phenomenon, where they basically have high white counts, they have confusion, um, they, have, uh, they develop pulmonary infiltrates from um, sort of this capillary leak, um, and, and so they look very, very sick, uh, but it's actually the inflammatory condition. And so pearl number four is that PG itself can cause a patient to be systemically ill. We care about the possibility of infection, um, but just because they look infected doesn't mean it's not PG. When you think about the rest of our spectrum of neutrophilic dermatoses, sweet syndrome, the other name for that is acute febrile neutrophilic dermatosis. It's right there in the name. They get fever. They get systemic symptoms. This is a patient, whenever he had skin lesions, uh, he would also have uh, painful joint swelling. And when those joints were tapped by rheumatology, they were sterile neutrophilia. Um, these patients can also have terrific pathogy. Here's after I biopsied this lesion. And you can see that my stitch is kind of buried somewhere in here. 
Um, and these patients can uh, be quite sick. Uh, this was a gentleman um, who uh, uh, kept going back to the ICU with uh, basically hypotension. Um, and ultimately, we were able to prevail upon the team that this was his suites doing this, uh, because when we uh, did, cur did uh, graphs of his temperature, his white blood cell count, and his steroid dose, we, we were able to show that you know, every time they lowered the steroids, his skin lesions would return, his white count would go up, his temp would go up, his, uh, he would become hypotensive, and he'd go back to the ICU. And so just understanding that these conditions um, can cause systemic illness themselves. So we have to take time to discuss with the other teams and explain the need for systemic steroids, right? They're kind of full steam ahead, infection, infection, infection. Okay, stop. We're worried about pyoderma gangrenosum or sweets. Um, we've got to reconsider what we're doing and think about steroids. So in addition to causing systemic illness, this is also a limb-threatening process. And I put this arrow here um, because uh, remember I told you that we biopsy the border, right? So this was a patient who was admitted on a Sunday, and then um, I'm seeing him on a Monday, and I called the resident who uh, did the biopsy the, the day before and said, hey, you know, it looks like he kind of biopsied in the middle. And he assured me that, no, he had biopsied the border. And so the border isn't the border anymore, right? This is rapidly expanding, and this is a pathology that we already know is, is happening here. So this has major functional implications. So there's clearly a cost of inaction. What about the cost of action, that is high dose steroids when there's a concern for infection? So we can use steroids safely in infection, especially when we're treating an infection, right? So we have them on therapy, either empirically or we know what we're treating. We even give steroids for pressure refractory sepsis in very, very sick patients. Um, and fortunately, because PG responds really well to steroids, we're gonna know quickly whether we're right or wrong. So pearl number five, ruling out other diagnoses is important, but quick action may be critical. And we have to have the courage to think through those possibilities and take a stand. Usually this means discussing with that patient's other providers. So how are we gonna treat these patients? Well, high-dose steroids are first line, they're fast acting, they're easy to acquire and administer, you know, something on the order of one to one and a half milligrams per kilogram per day of prednisone. Infliximab is my favorite sort of steroid-sparing agent, especially if they have underlying inflammatory arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and it's the only randomized controlled trial for PG uh, that's shown to be effective. And then cyclosporin is another first-line agent. I'm not a huge fan of this drug um, from a, a side effect profile perspective, um, but for steroid refractory PG, could consider. So here's our patient the day, the day that we give him steroids, and here he is the day after. And you can tell that that violaceous gunmetal gray border has already subsided. Um, so his ulcer improves, and then he improves as well, and he's able to leave the ICU and go to the floor. And so pearl number six is that we can use the inflammatory violaceous border acutely to tell us if we're on the right track, um, and then uh, chronically to help guide our steroid taper. This is another patient with a violaceous gunmetal gray border in the setting of an uh, operative procedure. We suspected PG, um, and we uh, started steroids. And here, um, after a few days, all that violaceous gunmetal gray is gone, and I can walk into that room and I can say to the patient, this looks great. And of course, I have to then qualify it and say, it looks great from a PG perspective. The inflammatory process is controlled. It's still obviously a huge wound. We're going to have to work hard on this to get it fixed. Um, but the point is that we've got the PG under control. So we're going to use the inflammatory violations border to gauge response to therapy and guide our steroid taper. So again, acutely, it helps um, reassure us that we've got the right diagnosis. And later, it tells us when we can taper. So how about this patient? She came in with uh, this painful left lower extremity ulcer that was, quote, not healing. And uh, she had been given a diagnosis of PG. She was on about 20 of prednisone. And then the response to this not healing was to bump her up to 80 milligrams of prednisone. So is this active PG or not?
Good. Okay. So it's not. And the reason that we are saying that is that there's no active violaceous inflammatory border. I'm not arguing the fact that it's an ugly looking wound or that it's not healing, et cetera, et cetera, but there are many reasons for wounds not to heal. And the point here is that without that violaceous gunmetal gray border, I know it's not an inflammatory process, at least not an active one, and the treatment for this is not going to be higher doses of steroids. Or consider this one. This is certainly an inarguably an ugly looking ulcer, but it's not active PG. If we compare it to how it looked before, you see that active violaceous gunmetal gray border, uh, but that's absent here. So pearl number seven, at a certain point, PG ceases to be PG and becomes instead a wound healing issue. Um, and if it's on the lower leg, it becomes venous stasis ulcer by definition, because there's so much swelling that accompanies these lesions. High dose immunosuppression is not an appropriate treatment for a stasis ulcer. And so we want to make our treatment decisions based on whether there's active inflammation or not. There's no substitute for good non-stick wound care, enzymatic debridement with something like Santal, multilayer compression, and so on. In addition to avoiding unnecessary steroids, we should also be prepared to manage complications. So um, things like bone density, uh, you know, uh, the loss there is within the first six weeks to three months. So we want to have patients on calcium and vitamin D. We want to think about bisphosphonates. We want to counsel about blood sugar um, and think about other um, steroid complications. So we're going to also want to initiate steroid-sparing agents early. So we talked about infliximab. We also use uh, the others on this list. Um, in patients who, um, in whom we're trying to taper steroids. Dapsone is, is, a, is a nice option. So pearl number eight, think proactively about complications of therapy now, not three months later. And this is an article that we um, put together on this, uh, on this topic. Okay, so back to our patient. Day by day, his ulcer heals, and he's able to actually heal this wound completely, and then he goes back to the OR and gets this um, closed. And so pearl number nine is that even the largest of ulcers can heal. And you know, when you successfully guide a patient with a wound like this to healing, it can be extremely rewarding. And, you know, and this is not a picture that any Mohs surgeon would put in their sort of like uh, you know, uh, best, best hits uh, in terms of scar outcome. But from a, for a medical dermatologist, this isn't half bad. Um, so uh, even this lady was able to heal up. So in summary, our pearls for management of neutrophilic dermatoses are that um, when something doesn't respond to a particular treatment as you expect it to, you have to take a step back, you know, reevaluate, reassess whether you have the right diagnosis. Pearl number two, we always want to ask the why here, why now question. What we see in the skin can indicate an underlying disorder. Pearl number three, PG workup, biopsy and tissue culture, CBC, CMP, RF, SPEP, plus minus a blood smear, colonoscopy, um, base it on the review systems and exam. Pearl number four, PG itself can cause a patient to be systemically ill. We want to rule out other diagnoses, but quick action can be critical for patients with a limb-threatening process. Pearl number six, use that inflammatory violaceous border to, gu to gauge response to therapy and guide steroid taper. Number seven, at a certain point, PG is not PG anymore. It's a wound, and you have to have good wound care. And number eight, uh, think proactively about complications of therapy um, starting steroid sparing agents early and tapering prednisone as able. And lastly, even the largest of ulcers can heal. So we also have a CME article that we did uh, late last year on neutrophilic dermatosis in case anyone's um, interested. So in summary, we discussed um, thinking about what skin findings mean for the patient's overall health. I think this is important. It's also fun to be able to say something based on the skin that's important for their overall health. Um, but we also want to focus on what's most important at a given moment. You can easily become overwhelmed by patients like this. Um, you want to kind of be able to drill down, what's the issue now? What can I not afford to miss now? 
and what needs to be addressed during this particular office visit. Gathering data to aid your final recommendations and seeing patients frequently to ensure the plan in is in place is uh, something that I fall back on all the time. I am not uh, ashamed or shy to say to a patient, hey, I'm going to look into this a little bit more before I give you my final thoughts. Um, and I'm going to see you back soon to make sure we're doing things um, the way that um, I intended. And asking for help is important as well. We also discussed strategy for management of two difficult conditions, vasculitis and PG. Um, and I know they don't come up every day, but when they come up, um, they're quite challenging. And so hopefully those pearls um, are ones that you found helpful. So I think no matter who you are, we all see cases which give us anxiety or bring clinic to a standstill. So we have to focus, prioritize, be organized, and live to fight another day. So I'll stop there, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, I'm going to let this uh, evaluation uh, do its thing as well. Thank you very much. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? All right, so I can at, run through these questions here and then take any others that, uh, that people have um, after. Uh, so what do you think about a patient with cyanotic-looking feet with chill brain lesions and intermittent hives? Vascular studies, normal. Initial labs, normal. What else would you test for? Hmm, okay. <laughs> um, let's see. So I think if, uh, if, you're, if you're making the diagnosis of um, pernio, uh, chill brains, we use that term when it's pernio in the setting of systemic lupus. The workup that I typically do um, is uh, a basic one. So I'll ask a good review of systems. Hopefully that's a theme that we're getting here. You want to think about and ask about what else is going on with that patient. Um, and then I will order a limited hypercoagulable workup. So I'll get cryos. I'll get common things, antiphospholipid antibodies, protein C, protein S, factor V Leiden. Um, this is usually where I'll stop, um, unless there's something else that's a red flag on the review of systems. Um, I think I saw like six or seven cases of pernio this winter uh, in Philly. You know, it doesn't have to be so cold. It can just be cold and damp. Um, and so uh, it happens for sure. And I would say the majority of those patients um, either don't have an underlying thing or the underlying thing that they have is sort of like a small thing, like they have a small monoclonal homopathy or something like that. And so then I'll just manage it. They may not need any treatment during the summer. Um, and then later in the winter, they might benefit from things like Plaquenil, pentoxifiline, um, cal calcium channel blocker, aspirin, or even just topical care with something like clobetazole. All right, so I, for IJ vasculitis, how do you monitor their blood pressure coming off as or go to pharmacy, check at home, or call in with report? Okay, so, you know, obviously when they're in the clinic, you can check it then. Um, you know, it depends on, like, how worried you are or what's going on. At a certain point, if, like, you have a reason to check it that often, they should be seeing nephrology, right? Um, so you can certainly get an idea, okay, normal blood pressure, you see them back, you know, relatively soon after their initial diagnosis, normal blood pressure, um, you know, you can advise them if they have access to a place to check, they can check it um, in between visits. Um, but assuming the, the urine sample is normal and the blood pressures are normal, um, you know, I'm not super strict about them getting blood pressures, uh, you, know, uh, you know, between visits necessarily. 
Okay, can you repeat the treatment of vitamin C and what else for PPD? Okay, <laughs> so this is not something with any like spectacular data. Um, I've used it a handful of times and generally had pretty good response um, if that passes for, for data. Um, so it's vitamin C 500 milligrams twice daily and ruticide or rutin um, and the dose that's uh, in the literature is 50 milligrams uh, twice a day. Um, and uh, actually you can't find that dose. If you tell a patient to go find it, they're gonna be um, at a loss. So what I usually tell them to do is, you know, get, go to Amazon, uh, this is the easiest way to find anything, but go to Amazon, and usually I think the lowest dose I could find was like 450. So just say take, you know, split them in half, take, you know, take, you know, half twice a day. The point is these are vitamins and they're uh, water soluble, so if they take more than they need, they will just urinate out the excess. Why does that help? Uh, to the next question, um, well, the idea here is that um, we're thinking like vascular fragility. Um, so, uh, you know, vitamin C is a cofactor for collagen production. Um, you know, the idea is uh, that let's shore up any deficiency here to help with vascular fragility. It's also an antioxidant. And here I'm putting quotation marks, I'm hand-waving. I told you there's not any good data. Um, but the idea is that um, you're just helping with this kind of quote-unquote vascular fragility. Um, and so uh, this can be useful in patients who, um, who have PPD or sometimes easy bruising and bleeding, you know, uh, in other settings as well. Um, do you biopsy a patient that comes in with vasculitis that are already taking prednisone from the PCP? Okay, so, you know, I think um, in general, you know, I like to biopsy things that I think are, I'm going to get useful information. And that's true of any test that we order, right? Um, we want to get useful information that's going to change what we do. If I see, for instance, an old ulcer that's being called PG, if it's an old ulcer, if I biopsy that, it's going to show what? An old ulcer, right? Um, I try in that setting to say, you know, if they had a biopsy from before, I want to get that. If uh, they have photos from before that look more like PG clinically, that's helpful. The same for vasculitis. If I see like an old crusted up lesion, you know, I may choose not to biopsy it because I know it's not going to be particularly helpful. Um, if it's not terribly old, um, you know, I think it's still perhaps worth biopsying because there's no time like the present. It's hard to get a patient back. Um, this might be your best chance to, to kind of nail it down. Um, so, you know, if, if I think it's going to be useful at all, I will biopsy it. Um, and if they have active lesions, even if they're on therapy, um, you know, you'll, you should still see um, characteristic histologic changes. Um, so I will stop there. I don't see there are any other questions unless somebody has one they want to raise their hands and ask. But uh, thank you for your attention.